is Stephanie James with The Spark, and I am so thrilled today to have back for the second time Dr. David Burns, psychiatrist who popularized cognitive behavioral therapy and as an adjunct professor emeritus in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Stanford School of Medicine and the author of best-selling books, Feeling Good and The Feeling Good Handbook. And I always have to add my two of my favorite books, Feeling Good Together and When Panic Attacks. So Thank welcome to the spark. My, and my daughter helped edit those last two. And they're much better written than my earlier books for that reason. <laughs> I was so I can't get her to edit for me anymore. She's a mom now and she's got her hands full with her own life. But it was a great experience to have her editing when panic attacks and feeling good together. And I'm glad that you like them. I'll, I'll pass that on to her. Yes, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, David, for being back on The Spark. Pleased to be here. It's always fun to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I want to say, too, what a privilege and honor to be out there with you uh, at Stanford and to be a part of the training group. Thank you so much for that experience. And to be a part of our pop, my feeling good podcast. Which yes, we, we were live on on that, and we were really happy to to have you join us there at the in the Tuesday group uh, at Stanford. Well, that was wonderful. I actually just had a chance to listen to that podcast on Wednesday. Oh, you did the one I, we did. Yes. How how did it sound? I thought it sounded great. It was it was oh, really interesting. I'm I'm going to be real curious to hear the next. The next podcast here, you talked about doing the feared fantasy technique once again. Yeah, we, I had two people who had more intense social anxiety fears. One, one is a, a woman who's graduating from the beginners group to the uh, advanced group next Tuesday. Alicia is her is her name, a lovely woman, but she had two issues. She thought she was afraid she'd have to role play in the group with a, you know it'll be have about thirty people in it at that point or more. And then, you know, make a fool of herself and screw up and have people look down on her. And then she also, she blushes very easily. She goes bright red, just if you just glance at her. And then she's all ashamed of this. And then she had this thought, oh, uh, people will notice me blushing and they'll think I'm an idiot. They'll think I won't know anything. So we had some, so we did the feared fantasy. Let's go to the Tuesday group from hell where people really think these things about you. And they actually say these things to you. And it was just hilarious. And she went into a state of enlightenment right, right before your very eyes or ears. And, and it was really it, it was really cool. And then I gave her a homework assignment that when she does come to the merged group and we all go around to introduce ourselves, she has to uh, stand up and, and announce that uh, she blushes a great deal, <laughs> and kind of as a shame attacking exercise. That was freaking her out, but she's going to do it. And I also gave her an assignment to go up to three strangers a day and say, I, I want you to know that I've, I've blushed a lot ever since I was a little girl. I'm so ashamed of it. I've always been trying to hide it. I just decided to stop hiding it and start telling me people. And that's why I just told you. So she's she's going to be doing that as well. She was really a good egg. And it was, it was dramatic because you could hear her recovery right happening as it was happening. And she went into a state that the Buddhists call laughing enlightenment. And, and when she, you know, when she confronted the monster she feared the most when we did this exercise, it was really, it was really fun. Well, it sounds like, I mean, she was able to truly break through what those, yeah. you know, limiting beliefs were. I, I had a co-therapist 
Yeah. He made this error. He didn't know he was making the error, and I corrected him, and I heard that, and then I, I corrected the error with, with the hiker. But then I asked him to summarize what you know Heather had just said, and he summarized it like, like this, and then what, what do you think about this r response? You know, was it outstanding, terrible, somewhere in the middle? Put your, Write down what, what you think, and then now you can click, go to this page if you want to see the answer. And I thought that might be kind of fun both for therapists, and then I'll say this is only for therapists, uh, unless you're a really interested uh, patient. <laughs> you know, I'm just kind of thinking that patients might also want to get on the inside of therapeutic errors. But what he did was so interesting because she had been overly critical. She thought she was overly critical of her, her, her sons and her ex, and she panics and thinks her, her kids won't prepare won't be prepared for life, and then she starts blaming her ex, and she saw all this about herself, and she saw herself as this really horrible human being who's going to drive everyone away and end up alone. And uh, and then she had made the comment that, that I'm just so preoccupied with my myself all the time. I'm just narcissistic, and I don't spend any energy worrying about you know the feelings of of other people. And then I asked Zane to paraphrase that, and 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 he said, well, it looks like what you want is more balance in your life to have a balance between concern for your own feelings and concern for other people's feelings. And when he said that he was really trying to whitewash her statement because it wasn't anything about balance. It right. was about her, her being a horrible human being. And, and then I pointed that out and, and, and asked, you know, asked her how she had felt. She said she, it made her feel worse when he said that because it was as if he was afraid to acknowledge the severity of what she had said, as if this is so awful we can't deal, deal with it. Yeah. And then I paraphrased what she said using her own language, and then she burst into laughter and said, oh, that's an A+. Plus. <laughs> and it was paradoxically so helpful for her, for me in a kind of a calm way to say, it sounds like you see yourself as this horrible human being and you're narcissistic and you're going to end up alone and you're just filled with self-hatred. And then she just she just loved that. And I, I, and I thought, well, even that could be kind of an interesting point uh, in, in this uh, chapter. And, and patients might find that interesting, too, because I see therapists doing that all the time, trying to cheer people up or so-called normalizing what they're saying, trying try to help. And it's a kind of a codependent, narcissistic uh, error that the that therapists make. Uh, well, and I think sometimes it comes across as inauthentic, too. Yeah, right. You know, that they really pick up on that, and sometimes I think their BS yeah. meter pegs yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, so yeah, they're like, point. oh, uh, I don't know if this therapist is really seeing me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you want your therapist to see how awful you are and go with you to the gates gates of hell. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Because if I take you to the gates of hell and you, and you end up liking me anyway and you show me some unconditional regard, maybe I really do have a chance of healing and liking myself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right? It's such a paradox. Yeah. 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 Interesting. But, but, but one question for yeah, you. Yeah. Where did you get your own fantastic listening skills, empathy skills? Like what you just did right now is pretty spectacular. Oh, thank you. You know, lots and lots of, of practice through the last 30 years. In, mm -hmm. And I feel really blessed, David, because my background really, I mean, I did adolescent psych. 
Um, I did, this is right out of undergrad. I did adolescent mm-hmm. psych. I did drugs and alcohol. I worked with developmentally disabled geriatrics mm-hmm. and then moved yeah. to seriously mentally ill. Um, yeah. and then I worked for the school district for 10 years with kids and families yeah. and, and just, it was just continually tuning in, tuning in, tuning in. And I bet last... you were really good from the right out of the starting blocks. Oh, thank you. I, I have to I felt so blessed because I, I was the only non-master's level person at the time that I worked at the psych hospital in Denver at the adolescent unit on the therapy team. Yeah. And that was such an honor for me at the time. Um, I didn't but... work with a lot of adolescents, but it, whenever I did have the chance, I always just loved it. I thought they were just so easy to work with. It's been the more violent they were, the the, the better I got along with them. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You know, what I found was really interesting because we definitely had some hardcore customers. Um, we had a lot of kids from all over the nation. This was the care unit of Colorado in Aurora is yep. what the hospital was called. And um, I remember, I mean, we had this one kid, he was just a huge kid from Chicago, very intimidating, um, but it was great. He, he had been really mean to me one night. I can't remember, he was mad at me, and I think I was just trying to get him to go to bed, and he called me a bitch, and, and was very intimidating, not in front of him, but I went to the you know, break room and cried, you know, just oh, like, wow. oh, this is awful. Well, one of my girlfriends uh, was the recreational therapist, and we had a high ropes rope course on campus. Oh, wow. So the yeah. next day, she had he and I go up on the top of this pole together. It was called the oh, pamper wow. pole. Oh, you were so brave to do that. Oh, my goodness. And we had to meet each other in the middle of this. You know, we're up on this wire. We had to go up these phone poles and then oh, help each gosh. other cross each other's body and wow. get to the other side. And when they belayed us down... This kid ran over to me and literally picked me up off the ground. He hugged me so tight. Yeah. Well, that was such a fantastic story. Can I give you my adolescent story? This I want to hear it. What we're supposed to talk about, but it's fun stuff. Oh, it's great. I went over. I had a chance to administer some of my assessment tests to uh, the place where they take kids when they're arrested, juvenile hall or, or something like, like that in, in San Mateo. And... I, I, they had about 200 of these kids fill out my test because they wanted to find out how angry they were, how depressed they were, how suicidal they were. And then they asked if I would go and, and, and meet with some of the kids who had filled out the surveys to get their, their take on it. And first I met with, they picked six particularly violent girls who were gr- female g- gang members and I thought they were going to be real hardcore, and they were just so sweet and vulnerable, and mm. and and like they were just so grateful to have some person to talk to. They they were just just wonderful. And then after about forty minutes, the uh, probation officer came, came in and said, "Okay, well, Dr. Burns has to go and speak with the boys in about five minutes." And then all of a sudden, they refused to to talk. And I couldn't figure it out. Then five minutes they came and I, I left. I said, did I say something wrong? Because mm-hmm. when you came, after you came, they were so warm and open and having a wonderful exchange. And then after you came and said I would, I would be leaving in five minutes, they refused to talk to me. What did I do wrong? He says, you didn't do anything wrong. They're just so used to being rejected. Uh, yeah. And yeah. abandoned. 
That's what and, I was thinking. You, they, they're like, okay, he's going to abandon us too. Yeah. He's leaving, yeah. so now it's it's over. It was just it was just mind blowing, and then they had me meet with about six boys, age thirteen to eighteen, who had been arrested for violent crimes. I think the oldest one had murdered two people, and uh, it was a particularly tough group. But they were just like the girls. It was really oh, they were just real open and eager to talk, and they were sharing their feelings. But the, this older one, Billy, would the one who was 18, who had killed two people, uh, or pres- I guess he, that was the charge at any rate. And uh, so I said, Billy, I noticed that you're not uh, talking at, at all. He says, well, you, you want to know why that is? And I says, yeah, sure, I'd, I'd love to. I'll tell you what, uh, doctor, you got up this morning and, and you said, I'm going to go and meet these uh, violent uh, gang members in the juvenile hall, and then you're going to talk to us about violence and what what are the causes of violence among teenagers. It's some new theory of your own, and then you have fantasies of being interviewed by Time magazine and 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 getting rich and famous based on a learn from us here today. But but you ain't given us nothing in return. You, you see, doctor, you're, what you're doing, you're trying to exploit us. You're trying to, to use us. And that's why I'm not talking. Wow. And I felt so embarrassed when he said that, because that was exactly the fantasy that I'd had. Right. Yeah, I thought I'm going to talk to you, and I'm going to figure out some clever thing, and I'll be in the media. And I had to decide if I was going to use my five... Uh, secrets of effective communication and be real or, or, or fake it out. And I said, you, you know, Billy, I'm, I'm so embarrassed and ashamed to hear what you're saying right now because I have to agree with you. I did have exactly those fantasies this, this morning, and, and I hadn't thought of it that, that way. But, but you're right. I am trying to exploit you and use you for my own purposes and, 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 and I'm not really giving you anything in return. And if I was you, I'd be pretty darn pissed off. Yeah. And, uh, and, I wouldn't, and I wouldn't talk either. And, and so I, all I can say is uh, I feel really ashamed right now, and I have to plead guilty as accused. And then he opened right up, and he just chimed in, and he was one of the best, uh, best contributors. But I just love working with... Uh, with any anybody really, but I, I love teenagers because they're so open. Oh well, and and they're at such a raw and kind of vulnerable time in life. You know, right in between you know adulthood, and that's got to be so incredibly frightening because they don't know what it looks like, and then being taken care of before, or maybe not being take yeah. being taken care of in in some of the cases. But I mean, that that's just a tough transition for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think life in all of its phases can be can be pretty tough for an awful lot of people, including a lot of people who are listening to the show today. Absolutely, we're well, struggling with depression or yes, trouble relationships with someone or anxiety or or insecurity. Yeah, it doesn't matter what time in life we are. That's right. For for people that don't know what your Tuesday training group is about there at Stanford, would you help listeners understand what you guys are doing there? Yeah, the um, I'm on the voluntary faculty at Stanford Medical School. I don't get paid, but I, I 
I put in several hundred hours a year or more of, of uh, volunteer teaching, and and I and I, I teach the psychiatric residents and the psychology fellows and all the those things that are part of the formal Stanford training. But it occurred to me that a lot of the clinicians in our community are out there in the trenches alone trying to treat people, and they get burned out because they run up against people they don't know how to help. And, and they find that most people aren't really recovering ver very well. And so I have unlimited free training at Stanford for Bay Area mental health professionals. It, uh, it meets Tuesdays from 5 to 7.30. And, uh, and, and it's, it's completely free and, and, and they can stay and get unlimited training and case supervision for the rest of their life. Uh, and and also I do free personal work with them, helping them with their with their own issues. And then we also have a Sunday hike. The people in the training groups can come and meet at my front door. It's at 8:30 now because it's it's warmer, so we made it a little earlier. And then we hike for about three and a half hours or so and do personal work. I treat people on the hikes and. Um, uh, and I also we practice techniques, and so they they can do that too. And then after the hikes, we often go to a local restaurant and and continue our our, our dialogue, have kind of a celebratory brunch. And so that that's how it works. And and that that Tuesday group, those training groups, allow me to stay doing therapy because I don't have a private practice anymore. But I get to treat a lot of people every week, so I I can't you know, make things up out of my head. I'm actually myself working with people in the trenches, and this has helped the development of the new Team CBT model uh, as well. Our, our Tuesday group is kind of like a psychotherapy think tank, yeah. and, and we develop new teaching methods all the time, and we develop new treatment methods all the time. Well, I, it was such a powerful experience. It was so neat to show up, and here's these 21 other, you know, powerful therapists in the room, um, and to be there with you, and I was a little intimidated when you just said jump right in, and you had me jump right into doing a role play, and and then everybody grades you, and I got a B on my first one, but I got an A minus on the second. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. That's one of the unique unique features, and and some therapists will tolerate this, and some will not. But we make people do role plays, and then say, here's what you did right, here's what you did wrong. You get immediate feedback, and I believe that's that's the only way. The way to learn, but some we had a new therapist uh, join us on Tuesday, and we broke into small groups for practice. And when she spoke, she spoke with a lot of a lot of intelligence. She sounded like a really exceptional therapist. But when she went into the role play, her her skills were uh, very lacking, mm -hmm. in my mm -hmm. opinion. And uh, and when we gave gave her. Great. I, I said I have to give you a C out of politeness, and uh, yeah. and I can see you're really a smart person, but you made a lot of errors that you could learn to correct and really improve your therapeutic technique. And and here's what what they are. But I'll tell you the truth, I I think she didn't take kindly to it, and I predict mm. she returned to to the group that she doesn't want to have to look at at herself and that's just a guess and it may be uncharitable and, and she may may be back and most of the people who come they're just so eager to learn and hungry to learn and gracious about getting negative and positive uh, feedback both but it's it, it's hard because it uh, it hurts your ego really uh, 
to... Well, you, you have to be vulnerable. I mean, that's one of the yeah. things you told me when I said, well, you know, what do I need to bring to the group? And you said, bring your vulnerability. Yeah. You know, come and yeah. show up, be authentic. And, you know, I, I have to share with you one of the ironic things was when I got a B from you, uh, when I did the first role play, I actually was thinking to myself, you know, I had this thought like, what what should I say? Like, what would, you know, yeah. what would Dr. Burns want me to say? And so it yeah. wasn't as authentic. Yeah. And and I think I had told the person we could join together, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I remember yeah, you go like, yeah. I am so sick of hearing <laughs> yeah. about joining together. Hey, thank you for sharing. We can join together. <laughs> <laughs> it was this perfect moment. And then when I did the second role play later on, when we broke into the small groups um, with the gentleman that we ended up doing, um, the feared, no, I don't know if he was at the feared fantasy. He was doing the one with his son. Uh, oh, Robert. Robert. So when I when I did the role play with Robert, you know, that's when it was just I was just authentic. I just tuned in and kind of just again, like you said, I just showed up. And so, you know, it's pretty, pretty um, special in my career to get an A minus from Dr. Burns. Well, that, I'm <laughs> flattered to hear you talk like that. But I, I'm excited because I think psychotherapy can be transformed into a series of specific techniques that people can practice. And some are hard and some are easy to to, to learn, but get immediate feedback. And they, there is a science of psychotherapy. And the, the validation factor there is if you're getting rapid, dramatic changes with your patients in every single uh, therapy session. So it's not just some theoretical thing. We're, we're all about getting extremely rapid, complete recovery, lasting and, com and, and complete recovery. Well, and that's really the power of this training group because everybody is working on their real issues Yeah. in these role plays. And so yeah. it, it really is, um, you, you can see the transformation happen, like you said, right during the training groups. Yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about this because, you know, on, on our first interview, we didn't really have time to talk about what exactly is the team approach and how is it different from traditional cognitive behavioral therapy? Well, cognitive therapy was was really huge. I, it, it, I mean, it started small, and, you know, in the mid-70s, we were, Beck was talking about it, we were talking about it, but then when Feeling Good came out and the research showed that it was as effective as antidepressant drugs. It swept the world and became the top, uh, most popular form of psychotherapy in the world. And it was all about the, the idea that your thoughts create your moods. When you're depressed, you're giving yourself negative messages. When you're panicky and afraid, you're giving yourself uh, you know, negative messages. Something terrible is going to happen. When you're depressed, you're telling yourself you're a loser, you're no good, you're hopeless, you'll never get better. And these thoughts are the actual cause of your symptoms. And, and, and we can develop powerful ways to help people change the way they think and, and therefore cha change the way they feel. And it worked uh, an awful lot of the, the time and, and the effects were particularly amazing to me because I had been trained in conventional psychodynamic therapy you might say mm -hmm. and 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 giving pills 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 and i rarely saw people improve a great deal much less recover completely then when i started using cognitive therapy i saw it all the time and it blew my mind and so this has become huge worldwide there was only one fly in the ointment you might say is that not everybody 
seem to take to, to cognitive uh, therapy. Uh, I had uh, a lot of patients and they, they just loved writing down their negative thoughts and finding the distortions and learning cool techniques to crush the negative thoughts and eureka, they were feeling better. But I had other patients who they kept yes-butting me and they didn't want to do their psychotherapy homework and, and, and they were really, really tough sledding. And then I started noticing in the research studies uh, came out the same same way. See, early on, we were all thrilled that cognitive therapy was as good as the best antidepressants. Absolutely, and, and that that had never been shown before. And there was a new drug-free treatment that's as good as antidepressant drugs. That was just mind-blowing and huge. But then, over time, uh, I began to see more and more studies where antidepressants themselves barely outperform placebos. And this is really well established as as a fact now. And and what it means is 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 if you have a bunch sixty or a hundred or a thousand depressed patients, you give them antidepressants, a good fifty percent of them or more will not achieve the criteria for improvement. And a, and a, if you give them placebos, just an inert pill, thirty five percent of them will. 40% of them won't, won't recover. And then if you add, you know, cognitive therapy or whatever, maybe it's 45%, but it's, it's, it's not that much different from placebo therapy. And, and I don't want to bust cognitive therapy because this is true of every form of psychotherapy. There is no form of psychotherapy in the world that has been shown to outperform placebo wow. by much, if at, if at all. And so I... And then I saw that too in my practice. Half my patients were just recovering like magic in just a small number of sessions, and half of them were just like fighting me. Uh, and so I decided to go about doing research to, to find out why. And to make a long story short, it, it, the answer turned out to have to do with motivation and, and, and research uh, and, and, re, and, and resistance is what I mean. That... that uh, I, I discovered, you know, it's an old truth. There, there was a Catholic uh, monk, I think, Anthony de Mello, some kind of an, a leading Catholic mystic, and and he said, "We we yearn for change, but cling to the familiar." Mm, and yeah. that's actually not an accurate description of how resistance works. It's not caused by clinging to the familiar. It's caused by something else. But it's, it's a cool statement that we, if you're depressed, you know, part of you wants to get better, but a part of you is going to fight against anyone who tries to help you get better. And then I was able to, to discover what the causes of resistance are. Why human beings resist treatment for depression, why they resist treatment for anxiety disorders, why, why we sometimes resist someone who tries to help us with a troubled relationship, and, and why we, we resist getting over a habit or, or, or addiction. And I was also able to develop techniques to melt away therapeutic resistance quickly, especially in the range of depression and anxiety. And so what we've now seen is, is, is that before we try any cognitive techniques or behavioral techniques or, or techniques drawn from any school of psychotherapy, before, before we try hypnosis or EMDR or any, any so-called method to help somebody, we bring their conscious awareness, their, their resistance to conscious awareness. And I give you an example of that. Yeah. 
if you want. Yes. And then we, we melt it away, and that takes only about uh, 20 or 30 minutes. And then when someone is free of resistance, g- generally recovery is just 5 or 10 or 15 minutes away. And, and so because of this new breakthrough, my success rate with patients has gone from about 50 or 60% to about 95%. Wow. Or more. And, Amazing. And my, the time of treatment has gone down tremendously in, in my hands. Almost everyone I treat, I can get a complete recovery in just one therapy session. Now, it has to be like a 90-minute session or an hour and a half or an hour and 45 minutes, maybe maybe two hours. But 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 then the, the treatment is really more or less done. And they can come in for relapse prevention training or they can come in for a tune-up or to work on some other problem, which is fine. But it, it to me, it, it's been a remarkable breakthrough in the technology of psychotherapy. And it makes life for me like, like magic because every time I treat someone, pretty much I see them recover. They go from sobbing to, to laughter, to, to joy. And it makes me so high and so happy to, to see that happening and, and to participate in that, in that process. But a lot of people don't believe this is even possible. And I think if you had told me 10 years ago or 15 years ago that this is possible, I would have just figured you were a con artist. Programming on NoCo FM is supported by its listeners and by Audible.com. With over 180,000 titles to choose from, Audible.com allows you to listen to an immense library of books for every taste on your iPhone, Android, Kindle, tablet, or computer. Audible.com has a special offer for listeners which includes a free audiobook of your choice and a 30-day free trial. Learn more and get your free audiobook now at noco.fm audible. And so it, it begs the question, is it lasting results? Once this breakthrough has happened and you've had, you know, an hour and a half, hour and 45 minute session, what, what have you noticed? Are those results well, lasting? There, there's three things that have to do with long-term prognosis uh, once, you've, once you've recovered. The first thing is the speed of recovery. The faster you recover, the better you do over the long haul. The second thing is the duration, the extent of recovery. If you recover 100%, in other words, if your depression score goes from, let's say, if it's a zero to 100, say from 85, which would be extreme, to zero, uh, then you've got a great long-term prognosis. If you're only partially improved, then you really haven't recovered and you're just going to start relapsing right away and the third thing that's really important is relapse prevention training which takes about 30 minutes 20 or 30 minutes following recovery because every person will relapse everyone in the united states will relapse forever the buddha said that 2500 years ago that was an attempt at humor not successful (laughs) (laughs) i was trying to think of i'm like what (laughs) But that, the Buddha did say that, that okay. suffering, you know, pain is a part of, of, of life. And of no one is entitled to be happy all the time. 
And so if I've worked with you and you've been, say, like a lot of patients depressed for 35 years, horrifically depressed, and we have a single session and all your symptoms disappear and you go into a state of euphoria. Well, I define a relapse as one minute or more of feeling like crap. Mm. And given that, I think we all relapse just about every day or, you know, several times a week, something comes up and you get all all upset. I know I do. Uh, But most of us can pop out of it. Mm-hmm. people who are prone to depression get sucked into it and so you you just i just educate the person it's great that you're so happy today and you're enlightened you're spiritually enlightenment you're euphoric your depression is gone but it's a hundred percent likelihood that you're going to relapse and you might relapse in three hours it might be three weeks from now it might be three months from now but it's an irreversible certainty so let's prepare for that let's write down the kind of negative thoughts you're going to have when you relapse like you'll be thinking oh the recover the treatment was superficial it didn't work my improvement was just a my recovery was a fluke i'm worthless after all and then i i practice i become their negative voice and i hit them with these thoughts and, and see if they can crush the thoughts. And I have them record this, too, on their cell phone so that when those thoughts return, they can just turn on the cell phone and hear them cr- crushing, crushing those, those thoughts. Now, I ha- did that throughout my career with every patient I ever treated, and I've had almost 40,000 wow. therapy sessions with patients struggling with extremely severe depression, extremely severe anxiety disorders. But every time I terminated someone, I, I, I went through this, this little uh, pr- process. And I can count on two hands the number of patients that ever came back for a relapse. Maybe eight or ten is all. And, and all but one of those, it, when they came back for a tune-up, it was just one or two sessions. And then they were uh, on their way again. And so for me, the... Uh, the long-term thing has, has never been a problem. What, what is, takes a high art form is training therapists so they can develop the skills to get this, this high, highly high-speed change. And it takes a lot of practice. When I do workshops, I, I make all the techniques look real easy. But but they're not, and you saw in the group therapists struggling even w- with basic empathy skills to say nothing of the uh, agenda setting skills to melt away resistance. They're pretty sophisticated. Uh, we, we use fifty, a hundred methods to to challenge negative thoughts. There's there's a lot, a lot to to the therapy, and those who are committed to learning it also report dramatic uh, in, in improvements in, in, in their outcomes, the, the, the speed of, of treatment. But it's not a simple gimmick that, that you can learn. Uh, it, it's, it's, more of a, uh, it's, it's more of a complex pr- process, how, how to bring about these, these rapid changes and melt away, way resi- melt away resistance. I could give you an example of how we melt away resistance if you want. Sure. Yeah, because I, I wanted to circle back around to that because as a therapist, and you know, so many of my friends are therapists and colleagues, um, that's something that we talk about a lot, right? Oh, is, is that right? Yeah, is client resistance to actually getting well? Yeah. Right. So yeah. that's a common. Yeah. Difficulty. And the theories that people have about resistance, um, why why patients resist getting well, or tend to be pretty insulting to the patient. Uh, there are things like, oh, you're afraid to lose your therapist, 
you know, so so you want to go and get the support every week, uh, or or you you like when you complain and you're depressed, people give you attention, and and so you're kind of ad- addicted to that, or or you're afraid of change, or or, or or something something like that, and the problem with those theories is they're kind of like put downs. It, it sounds like the patient is a little whiny baby who. Uh, you know, want, wants attention. It, it's just, it, they're, they're kind of kind of an, an insult. And the way uh, the way we do it, uh, I, I can give you an example. A, uh, a a woman who I treated at one of my trauma workshops had had three decades of uh, rape and uh, beatings for, for, from her husband, and she stayed in in the marriage. Because did I, did we talk about this already? No, no. Okay, and uh, because she had, you know, her her two two sons who she loved, and and her husband was was a fairly wealthy uh, sociopathic guy, and he said if she ever tried to leave him, he would kidnap the boys and take them to South America, and she'd never see them again. And she believed that, that this was was true. And it was horrible. She talked about uh, trying to stifle her screams when he was meeting her so the boys wouldn't hear. It was just heart- heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. And then finally, uh, I think 12 years before I met her and she volunteered to, to do the live demo at this workshop, they'd gotten divorced finally. But she was still quite quite depressed and uh and, and panicky and angry. And at the start of the uh, session, her depression score, her anger score, and her anxiety score were at the top of the scale, you know, beyond severe. They were just like as high as a human being can have. Now, when I work with somebody, I, I have them focus on one moment, and then what are your negative thoughts at that at that moment? And the moment was just sitting in the workshop. Uh, thinking back on on her life, and and she was depressed 100%, and anxious 100, and angry 100, and shamed and guilty 100, and hopeless, and you know all of these intense negative feelings. And then she was telling her things like, uh, 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 "I must, I must be defective." That that was hmm. one one of her thoughts and you see that a lot in people who have been abused they blame themselves it it was my fault and then she had uh, thoughts like I victimized myself I should have gotten out of the marriage sooner and then she had thoughts like the therapist in this audience are are judging me Uh, they'll think because she she was actually a therapist herself oh wow and she was. She had the thought that they'll think, how, how can I be a therapist and help other people when I can't even help help myself? And so those are very typical thoughts. Now, after I empathize, and she was really easy to empathize with. I, I didn't actually have to do much except sit and encourage her to talk and you know she cried and the feelings came out and and it seemed like we had a really a really good connection and then I do what's called paradoxical agenda setting once a patient feels accepted and understood I said now is there something here that you want help help with we'll call her 
Christine, and she said, "Oh well, yeah, yes, I, I, I would, I would like some help tonight." And I said, "Well, what kind of help would you want? Uh, suppose a miracle happens here, and and at the end of the workshop, you walk out of this room on a cloud nine, and you say that was the greatest experience of my life. What would happen?" And she'd say, "Well, I would, I, I would want to value myself and respect myself, and if there's any way." She says, I've been in treatment for 42 years for this depression, and if there would be any way I, I could improve in my feelings of depression and, and panic and, and all of that, uh, th that would be, you know, a dream. And, and then I said, well, let's imagine there's a magic button here. If you press this magic button, you'll be instantly cured with no effort, and you'll go into a state of euphoria. And your depression will go to zero, your anxiety will go to zero, your anger will go to zero, everything will go to zero and you'll just be incredibly euphoric and joyful. Will you press that magic button? And just like every patient, she says, oh yeah, I'll press the button. And then I said, well, um, unfortunately there's no magic button, but I do have some fantastic tools and I have no doubt if we work together You'll, you'll experience dramatic reductions in all of your feelings. And it could be that you will walk out of the session with all of them going to zero. But I don't think I want to use those tools. I'm not sure I'm willing to do that. Now she said, well, well, well why, why not? You know, I've been waiting 42 years. Why, why won't you, you know, help me overcome this? Now that's the beginning of the paradox. Team CBT is very paradoxical in, in the way it works. And, and I said, well, b before I would show you how to make these negative thoughts and feelings disappear, maybe we better sit down and, and, and make a list of what these thoughts and feelings show about you that's positive and awesome. And also, what are some benefits to you in having all of these uh, neg negative thoughts and feelings. So, uh, so she said, okay, let, uh, let's do that. But she said, what could possibly be positive or beneficial about my negative thoughts and feelings? And that's the point of view of society and the American Psychiatric Association is your depression is a defect. See, it's a brain disorder. Uh, and, and I, the expert, will help you with, with, with your brain disorder. And this is going in the opposite direction saying, what does it show about you that's positive and awesome? So I said, well, let's start out first on anxiety. You're 100% anxious because your husband's you're divorced, but he still lives in the same town, so he could still kill you or something. You press the magic button, now your anxiety will, will go to zero. Can you see any advantages of, of, of your anxiety? And she said, well... Maybe it's going to keep me safe. She said, I just recently met this really cool guy and we're flirting and I think he's interested in me and maybe my anxiety will keep me alert so I don't get into another abusive uh, relationship. So I said, well, let, let, let's put that down then, that your anxiety is a great benefit because, because it keeps you safe. So I said, so could we also say then your anxiety is a form of self-love? She says, what do you mean? I says, well, because your anxiety is what protects you. Yeah. from being hurt again. She, oh, you're right. My anxiety is a form of, of self-love. And, and like this is starting to shock her mm -hmm. to look at the positive. And I said, now you're, you're very depressed and, and guilty and ashamed. And you're saying, I must be defective. Well, what's really beautiful about telling yourself, uh, I, I'm, I must be defective? 
Jesus, I, I have no idea. How, how, how could that... How could that show something good about me to say I must be defective? Can you think of anything, Stephanie? So if her self-talk is, I'm defective. I'm defective. What, what, what does that show about her that's positive and awesome? What are some tremendous advantages to her? Could, could we come up, start with a list of 10 beautiful things that that thought shows about her? I guess I, wa- I would wonder about if she has some compassion for herself around that. Well, we could. That's not bad. We we could say when she says I'm defective, she suffers. Yes. Yeah. Perhaps we could say her suffering makes her more compassionate to, to, toward others. Yes. Her own patients. Right. So that one one benefit, and so she can identify with their suffering. Right. That would be one thing. What what else does this uh, I'm defective show? It's hard, isn't it? It is. It is. Patients, too. Um, They've never never thought that this way. Well, let me ask you this question. If you say I must be defective, does that show that you have high standards? Well, that's what I was wondering about. Like, she really, she's not going to, she's not willing to stay in a defective place. If she identifies it, she's saying, and this is, I'm yeah. depressed because it's not okay with me. Exactly. And, and so I said, so let's put that down. You, you have high standards. I said, have, have your high standards helped you in any way? She says, well, it's, they've motivated me to work really hard. And, and I say, so have you achieved things because of this? She says, oh, yes. After I got divorced, I got a Ph.D. in clinical psychology. And I have one of the biggest practices working with abuse victims in the city of blah, 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 which is one of the larger cities in the United States. I said, well, is that good to be motivated and to, to be productive and to get a PhD? She said, oh, that's very good. So let's put that down. Now, when she says, I must be defective, uh, would, would you say that's realistic? Would you say she has many defects? Yeah. So then does that show a sense of integrity? Oh, yes. That yeah, cool? that's great. And does it show a sense of accountability? Well, and she's being authentic, blank. right? I, I, I have course. these things. I, I'm not trying to project I'm a perfect person. Yeah, I've got these what defects. What is humility? Yes. Is that a spiritual quality? Love this. Yes. Isn't it amazing? And, uh, and, and, and then instead of blaming the world, she's saying the buck stops here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to look at myself. What, where, where did I screw up? Where did I go wrong? You see, and so you—it's just—it's like turning everything upside down. And when then she says the therapist and the audience here are probably judging me. What what's beautiful about that thought? What does that show about and her? She that's says, beautiful? say that again. When she says, well, she says the the, the hundred people are watching this live demonstration and this workshop. They're all therapists, so she's saying they're probably all judging me, and they're thinking, how can she possibly treat people when she can't even help herself? Well, that she really does have integrity, that she wants to be, you know, someone that these people would look at, that she's really willing, and she's vulnerable. She's willing to put herself out there and risk. I think that's huge. That, that's awesome. What does it show about the kind of uh, relationship she wants with the people in the audience? That she really cares about them because she values their opinion. Is that a good thing? Absolutely. So that we put that to, put that, that down, you see, and and then she's suffering. She's a hundred percent depressed. What what are some really highly desirable things about her sadness and depression? Why is that totally awesome? 
Well, I think one of the things that would make sense to me is that then she's she has reached that deep place within her so that she can relate to all these other clients that she's helping. That's true. We've said that, but I'm asking for something completely new and different. Tell me, help me understand. Well, um, if you press the magic button, she'll be euphoric. She won't be depressed anymore. Right. So she'll say, yes, I've, I've, I've just been through 42 years of depression and three decades of rape and beatings, and I'm as happy as can be. Would that make sense? No. Does she have a right to be depressed? Yes. Yes. It gives, oh my gosh, yes, it gives validity to her experience. Uh, uh, there you go. Bingo. Uh, and in addition, it shows her passion for what she's lost, her passion for life. It shows she really cares. Yeah. Isn't that neat? Yeah. Because and, if she was just numb, that might be different. Exactly. That would be horrible. Right. That would be so she'd given up and, you know. Right. But she's depressed because she's, there's an awareness of this huge loss. Yeah. You've oh. got it. Isn't it cool when, when, yes. when you get it? And, and now this is a very angry lady. She's angrier than almost any serial killer. She's a hundred on the anger scale. Wow. What, 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 we're always told control your anger. What's awesome about her anger? Well, it's protective. Well, that's true. What? What? Yeah. In, in what way? Well, I think so. It's not going to allow her just to be vulnerable or maybe to be a victim again. Is that important? Absolutely. Uh huh. Does she have a right to be anger? Angry? Yes. Yes. Is a world filled with a lot of awful things that people are doing. It is, and, and she's experienced it. Yeah. So, so she maybe, has a right to her anger. So maybe the problem isn't that she's so angry, but maybe the rest of us aren't angry enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> do, you, do you see? Yeah, and, yeah. And anger shows she's got a moral compass. Absolutely. The, again, yes, this isn't okay with her. Yeah, and she's willing to stick up for herself. Yes. So, yes. so we went through that and took about as much time as it just took us. Okay. And she's jotting these things down. All of a sudden, we have a list of uh, 21 beautiful things uh, that, that all with these so-called psychiatric symptoms are actually manifestations of her strengths. Wow. And, it's, and it's just uh, stunning. And then I say, well, why in the world would you want to press that magic button? Because then all this stuff is going to go down the drain along with your negative feelings. She says, I see what you're saying, but is there some way that I could, you know, reduce these feelings and still have these benefits? I said, Ab absolutely. And then we do the magic dial and, and say, well, let's imagine said we're going to dial these down. How anxious would you like to feel at the end of tonight's group? And she says, 2%. <laughs> I said, no, that's not enough. You need a little more anxiety. You don't know about this new guy. And now notice what's happening. I'm trying to persuade her to be more upset. That's another paradox. Do you see that? Yes. Oh, absolutely. She said, said, well, 5% then. We'll go for 5%. And how depressed do you, do you want to feel at the end of the evening? She says, well, 10% is plenty of, of, of depression. And how ashamed do you want to feel? She says, zero. I don't want any shame. And so she decides to dial them down. And then that's the end of this thing I call paradoxical agenda setting. And, and then we won't go into regular cognitive stuff at that point. What are the distortions in this thought? I must be defective. And how would you talk talk back to that thought? But now you see this powerful voice emerged from her, as with pretty much everyone I treat. Once the resistance is gone, 
I, I said, well, what are, what are the distortions in this thought? I, I must be defective. And she said, well, how defective could I be? You know, like I've done tremendous things with my career and, and I have a lot, there are a lot of really wonderful things about me. And she said, so she said, it's kind of all or nothing thinking. It's an overgeneralization. I'm generalizing from my bad marriage to have some self that's defective, which is complete baloney. And she said, it's mind reading. And I said, oh, I, why is, I must be defective. Why is that mind reading? And she says, well, I never thought of this before, but I, I always believed that the reason my husband beat me and raped me was because he could see that I was defective. Hmm. So I was thinking, that's all I deserve. But it never occurred to me until just now, maybe he was kind of screwed up. Yeah. And it was just like a light bulb went on in her face and then we, in her brain, and then we just did externalization of voices and she just blew her negative thoughts out of the water. It took, I would say, maybe four minutes, three minutes, five, five minutes, and she suddenly, her belief in them went to zero. She just blew them away. It was, and that's what I see. that. Before I had this paradoxical agenda setting, I almost never saw what I see almost every time now, this tremendous speed, because she had this healing voice in her the whole time, but she was keeping it hidden because of all of her resistance, thinking, you know, because all, all, all these positive things about her symptoms were keeping her kind of trapped, thinking... I can't let, let let go of this. And then when you talk them into the symptoms, maybe you don't want to let go of it. All of a sudden, the resistance disappears. And then there was only one left was a uh, uh, therapist in the audience are kind of looking down on me. And I said, well, how could we talk back to that thought? She said, we might have to test it with an experiment. And I said, do you want to give it a try? And she said, yes. I said, are, well, are you scared? She says, I'm terrified. So I said, let's go for it. So she said, would any of you want to come up to the microphone and let me ask you some questions? And so they came up to the microphone, a lot of people, and she said, what do you think about me? Are you judging me? And then it started out with women, uh, several women, and, and they had tears going down their cheeks. She said, I had the same experience myself. Wow. And you're my hero. You know, you're changing my life. Oh, it's right, powerful. Right, right. It was just powerful. a mind. And then some fellow in the back of the audience, he he jumped up out of his chair and he shouted, I, I, I would take a bullet for you. Oh. And it was just, and then I said, you can, if you want to, to, you know, I said, it's the end of the evening and we've got to call a close, but you you can, you can send uh, Christine an, an email and tell her what you thought. And then that night she got about 50 emails from people in the audience and they were just, this is the greatest experience, you know, I've ever had so seeing what you did tonight. It was pretty tremendous. And her scores all went to zero. I mean, it was below zero because she was really in a state of euphoria at, at the end. And, and then I've kept up with her. Uh, I touched base with her six months later. How are you doing now? And she says, I'm, my scores are exactly the same as at, at the end of the the evening. Uh, she says, I'm still on a high. And every, every now and then the negative thoughts try to come back. And she says, I feel like I'm a laser gun or an attorney. I just zap them and rip them to shreds. So it's, it's, almost, it's almost fun. And then she'd had, a, I think, a kind of a romantic excursion to uh, some 
resort in Mexico, and I, I think I, my hunch is she went with this new boyfriend, and but she was just uh, on top of the world and continues to be uh, t- today. So anyway, that's that's how it works, and I'm I'm glad we were able to do it interactively like this, and you can maybe start doing it with your clients if you want, and then tell me how, how it's working for you. It just it's like the most remarkable discovery of my career. There have been maybe three or four things that I've learned or discovered in my career that really, really changed my life. And this is certainly, uh, and my career, this is certainly one of the, the top two or three or four things. Well, and thank you so much for sharing that story and, and this example and, and, and talking about this powerful technique. You know, I have to say one of the things that was so powerful for me in this, in listening to this story, is when you talk about the magic button and the magic dial, it's still allowing that person to own and have their emotional experience. You know, I think so often, you know, we don't want to feel any of the negative emotions and, you know, we've kind of categorized those as bad and we're not going to have those. That's that's right. And that makes them sticky. You can't get rid of them then. Yes. And you're in this big battle with them. And and instead of just embracing them and saying there's actually some good out of the reason these emotions showed up, they might be uncomfortable, but they're a reason that, that they're here. And, yeah. and so you're tapping into that, you know, this this incredible value and saying, I don't have to be a perfect person with just happy emotions to yeah. be okay in this world, that actually all these emotions serve a purpose. Absolutely. And that's so powerful. Yeah. It's so much fun talking to you because you nail it every time. You must be kind of a genius or, or really good at empathy. Or you're just a fabulous uh, listener and, and, and interviewer. It's just such a joy to work with you. Well, thank you, David. Thank you. This, this is such a joy for me. And so the um, if people want to find out more about the team technique, if people wanted to learn for therapists, or even if clients wanted to investigate more, where would they find yeah. out about this? Well, my I have a tremendous re- free resources on my website, which is just feelinggood.com. Feeling good is one word with two G's in the middle. And one thing there, I have my own feeling good podcasts I do with Fabrice and I. You, you, you were on one of them and did great. And we're up to about, we're into the about We've had over 80 podcasts now, and it's kind of bringing uh, patients and general public and therapists like uh, going through all the different components of team therapy. That's a good training thing and a learning thing. Also on my website, you'll find I have a psychotherapy ebook for therapists called Tools, Not Schools of Therapy. And then there's all my books for the general public. You can Feeling Good, the Feeling Good Handbook, When Panic Attacks, Feeling Good Together. Uh, the, those have been very helpful to to many people. And then, of course, it'll probably be a good year before it comes out, but my new book, the sequel to Feeling Good, which will be Feeling Great, and I'll have all of this new, new stuff in there, and that'll be for the general public and for therapists uh, alike. Wonderful. Well, David, thank you so much for for talking with us today. And I just think this has been a wonderful example to be able to really bring it to this personal example of how team worked and kind of go through uh, this woman's journey. And then to know that, you know, six months later, she's just on her path and living this incredible life. Because I think it gives us hope that we too can can change our thoughts and change our experience. We don't have to let these old beliefs just, you know, hold us captive anymore. 
yeah, you can change the way you feel and you can uh, do it uh, in many cases without medications and and quickly. And it's it, it's the greatest thing in the world to recover from from depression and, and anxiety. It's uh, it's a, it's 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 emotional. It's psychological, but it's also kind of a, a spiritual uh, experience as well. I have learned so much in my conversations with David Burns. There are reasons for all of our emotions. Oftentimes, we don't see how our negative emotions can serve us as well. But when we examine their purpose, we can see how while we may want to reduce their intensity, we can embrace what purpose they do serve. Dr. Burns' approach of team therapy helps individuals break through distorted beliefs and do so amazingly quickly. I thought it was very poignant that part of this therapy is relapse prevention and knowing that we are all human and that all of us will and do slip back into negative emotions. Relapse prevention gives us the tools to deal with those negative thoughts as they arise and keep ourselves on track to feeling good and living our highest quality of life. I'm blown away by this therapeutic technique of breaking through 10, 20, and 30 years of negatively held beliefs in a single session and breaking through those beliefs in a way that is absolutely life-changing for the individuals who experience it. There is so much hope and power in these techniques for all of us to transcend the limited beliefs in our lives and continue to create more fulfilling lives where we can truly flourish. We can continue to heal, grow, and as Dr. Burns says, continue on the pathway to feeling good. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain, and podcast episodes are released the same day. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James.